Ian, we've just had a message from Donald Trump who said he wanted to come to one of the lunches next week. Would that be all right? Yeah, that'd be great. I'll put him next to Sadiq Khan. Um, unless Sadiq objects, uh, sharing a table with extremists, uh, he might not want to do it. Page 94, the Private Eye podcast. Hello and welcome back to page 94. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray and in this episode we are going to be discussing pubs and lunches. Pubs with reporters Tim Minogue and Sarah Shannon and lunches, as in the eyes, famous fortnightly bash with Adam McQueen and Maisie Glazebrook. But first, pubs. There are about 50,000 pubs across the country, which sounds like an enormous number until you remember that 1,400 of them close every single year, meaning that at the current rate of decline, it won't be long before they are an amusing novelty from history, much like space hoppers or home ownership. Uh, A lot of people have put the blame for these closures squarely at the feet of the pub companies. They're the guys who own thousands and thousands of pubs, and they lease them out to pub landlords. But how did we get into a situation like this? Uh, To explain, we have to look at the rise of the pubco empires in the first place. Here is Tim Minogue, Private Eye correspondent, on how it came to be. In the 1980s, uh, people got very concerned about the big breweries, people like Bass and Scottish and Newcastle and people like that. They owned most of the pubs. And uh, the Thatcher government, with its um, mission to, to bring more competition and choice for the consumer they decided to break up these monopolies and they brought in some regulations called the beer orders which said no brewer could own more than 2,000 pubs and that was very sensible what they forgot the bit they missed out was uh, they didn't say about people who weren't brewers and so the brewers were forced to offload thousands of pubs and these were snapped up by these companies these pub companies who are purely pub owning companies they have nothing traditionally to do with brewing or pubs or and no interest in that really so was there a problem with the situation where brewers owned all the pubs i mean it sounds like there might have been a good reason for reforming that there was a good reason and that that reform was was a welcome one but uh, what was the problem with the uh, the situation well the, the the problem was and it they haven't eliminated it is that if you are tied to your owner that means you are obliged to buy your beer from the owner and in some cases your um, soft drinks and your fags and crisps and things as well but it's, it's usually the alcoholic drinks you're, you're obliged to buy from them and very often these the prices they charge you are not reasonable if you're the tenant and so you'll be paying way over the odds whereas if you went on the open market i mean we've we've had instances of publicans complaining that they could if they could just go out and get their barrel of lager you know it, it might be 40 or 50 pounds a barrel cheaper if they were just buying from wholesalers and that problem existed then and it still exists now and also in those days you just had to sell and your customers had to drink that brewer's beer, which might not be great. And if you think back to the 1980s, and there was that great upsurge in, in people brewing real ale and more interesting, more interesting beers were coming about. And people wanted to be able to sell and these things and offer people a choice, and they weren't able to. Obviously, this arises from a situation where landlords are tenants, and it's not something pub you always think of. Tenants, yeah. Exactly. Pub landlords yeah. are... Many of them are, yeah. It sounds like you're saying we've gone from a situation where lots and lots of pubs are tied to a brewer, and have to sell that brewer's ale, to now being tied to a pubco. Yeah. 
and have to sell a particular kind of beer or yeah. whatever it might be. Yeah, well, they have to buy their beer from whatever it may be right. from that pubco. Yeah, and they complain, the tenants complain, that they're being, uh, to put it politely, screwed by their landlords, landlord in the sense, this sense of the person who owns the freehold. Yeah. I mean, just think, it's um, owning a pub, you know, it's a particular sort of Englishman's sort of dream, isn't it? You know, in, when you retire, you're going to own a pub, and it's all going to be lovely, and you lean on the door, and there's a, there's a Labrador on the floor, and, <laughs> and, and all that. And it's not very expensive to become a pub tenant. So people are sinking, you know, they're getting redundancy checks, uh, or nowadays they can uh, cash in their pensions, or they, they've saved thousands of pounds over the, their life savings, and they will sink this money into a pub tenancy and then they've got no experience and they and they're being ripped off by these ties and very quickly they get into all sorts of dire trouble we had one landlord he was uh, the landlord of um, quite a busy pub he was working 100 hours a week or more and uh, not breaking even because of all the charges that were going to his landlord the pub co sarah shannon is another of the eyes correspondents who has also written about pubs in the past a case that Private Eye covered a, a few years ago was that of somebody called Arthur Howe, who took on a tenancy at will agreement with Enterprise Inns. Um, he was taking on the Anchor Pub in Ham Green near Bristol. And he was told when he entered into this agreement that he could um, get a full tenancy eventually and buy the fixtures and fittings of the pub for around 15 grand. So Arthur was, you know, full of optimism and thinking he could revive this um, boozer with good food and good beer. And he used 13 grand of his own savings to clean up the pub and he dealt with roof leaks and then he dealt with gas leaks. And then when the gas leaks were dealt with and he tried to switch on the kitchen appliances, he found they were useless, they were condemned. So after much wrangling, Enterprise Inns installed a kitchen um, and gave Arthur a settlement of £3,000 for the costs he'd incurred that far. There were more electrical problems. Arthur continued to invest his savings, trying to improve them. But then Enterprise told Arthur that a full tenancy was now going to cost £50,000, quite a bit more than he'd originally been told. Arthur couldn't afford that. He said, you know, he'd have never taken on the lease if he'd realised. Meanwhile, Enterprise now owned a much improved building, um, an increasing clientele that Arthur had built to build up. And then um, he was devastated to learn that um, a chain of pub restaurants had bought the lease on the anchor and that he and his wife had to move out. In fact, he learned that the chain had been looking to the anchor for some time and they'd even approved building plans for the pub a year earlier. So he had been putting in all this effort really for nothing um, and he was left suffering with stress much poorer <laughs> and basically feeling like a caretaker um, for enterprise. God. That's a fairly common story of people putting in their own money um, yeah. to try and improve the building because they, they've got to believe in it and um, often they're just pouring their money into a black hole. Is there a way for publicans to break out of the beer tie, if they like? They say, actually, we've gone into business together, mm. but I'm going to try and buy my beer on the open market. Or In some cases, can it just not be broken? It can't be broken if you've agreed to it and they have quite sort of big brotherish ways of making sure you don't go elsewhere and buy your beer. Um, they have little um, monitoring equipments, sort of like a phone tap but for a beer line. <laughs> um, so it's running from your cellar up to your, you know, your bar and 
it's being monitored somewhere in between there um, to, to say when and how much is being pulled through the pipes so that the pub company can check you're selling what you say you're selling. Sometimes uh, this equipment called brew lines has been known to um, go wrong and um, there have been examples of pints apparently being pulled at five in the morning, which, you know, even the most decadent lock-in has presumably <laughs> finished at that time in the morning. Uh, so they can go wrong. And if the um, tenant decides to buy outside the beer tie uh, for whatever reason um, to try and make themselves more money or because the deliveries haven't arrived from the pub codes, uh, because they have quite sort of you know rigid delivery things that they have to follow um, and they, they rush out and buy their own beer then they're slapped with really big penalties and that becomes another part of the issue of why they can't make any money. There's been legislation recently hasn't there which has tried to deal with this problem in some way to try and arrest the decline in pub closures by s- sorting out this tie problem. So after many, many years of um, campaigning, the there were four, no less than four business select committees that all condemned um, Pubco's practices and said that the whole system needed reforming in favour of the the tenants. Tim Minogue. They acknowledged that uh, there was an imbalance of power, I think the uh, MPs called it, um, that amounted to, and I quote, downright bullying. Uh, between the pubcos like Enterprise and Punch Taverns and the tenants. And one tenant who the pub had closed, he said, you know, Enterprise, they told them they were struggling, they needed help, they didn't come forward. If they were late paying bills, they would get threatening phone calls. They wouldn't give them any pause on paying the rent. Um, we did a story once about a, a pub where the uh, in the Midlands where the the roof was leaking and if you went into the loo and it was raining you you you'd get drenched and and it wasn't the tenant's responsibility to repair this it was the owner the the landlord's responsibility and they they didn't do it and and so you know they those are those sort of problems now that was in 2009 the coalition government and the business secretary Vince Cable was um, i think rather pathetic and didn't really come forward with anything uh, very positive that Republicans welcomed, but the current government has brought forward a small businesses bill, or it's it's on the way through at the moment, and uh, that includes something which the pub tenants have wanted for a long time, which is called the market rent only option, which okay. sounds like a boring thing. <laughs> what it means is that if you're a tenant, your only obligation is to pay the rent to the owner of the pub you don't you don't have all this other nonsense like um, you know you're not a, you're not obliged you're not tied about the beer anymore so has that come into force yet uh, the- well no it hasn't there, there seems to have been some it was supposed to come into force by now by by the end of may there was uh, what was described by an insider as a drafting cock-up which we haven't quite got to the the bottom of it but it, it means it's been postponed and again the opponents of of reform have have really been um, fighting all the way I mean it was scrutinized by a House of Lords committee in April and one of the members of that committee was um, Lord Hodgson of Astley Abbotts he happens just happens to have been a director of uh, Marston's which is one of the biggest pub co's um, in the year to October last, it made 50% of its operating profit of £160 million 
from pubs with ties. So, you know, this is a chap, and he was a director uh, of that company from uh, September 2002 until January 2014. So, you know, this is hardly a man with, uh, with no interest. Why should he be on the committee? So, apart from that slight potential conflict of interest, there is now going to be an adjudicator, very excitingly, who is going to be arbitrating between the pub companies and their tenants whenever a dispute comes up. Everyone has agreed that this basically sounds like a good idea. But the landlords, um, when they heard Anna Subri, the business minister, announcing who the pub's adjudicator was going to be, they were alarmed. He's called Paul Newby, and a member of the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors, who until just about four weeks ago, he was a director of a company called Fleuritz, which acts on behalf of, advises uh, pubcos. He has openly said that he spent the last five years working mainly for Enterprise Inns, Punch Taverns and Masters. <laughs> he seems unable to grasp the idea that he might have had a conflict of interest. Earlier in May, he appeared before the uh, Commons Committee, the Business Innovation and Skills Select Committee, and um, he said he'd got a solution to this conflict of interest that he has, which was um, he would write a conflict of interest policy. Then he could consider whether he he could judge on whether he himself was I see. conflicted <laughs> or not. Uh, I mean, he, the MPs asked him how much money Fleurettes had recently had had from the big pubcos, and he said, oh, about 23% of total fees. Well, if you look at Fleurettes' um, accounts, um, they had income from the turn of the century till 2014 of 92.5 million quid. So if that percentage is true, he and his colleagues at Fleurettes have been paid more than 20 million quid by the pubcos. So no conflict of interest uh, whatsoever. <laughs> so while the government is fiddling around with this new regulator, conditions for pub landlords are still declining. Here is Sarah Shannon again. So the GMB trade union surveyed 3,000 landlords a couple of years ago and they found that 73% of the respondents to the survey were earning less than £10,000 a year. Over, wow. yeah, over half of the respondents said that they'd had to put their own money into the pub in the, in, in, over the years, um, sometimes as much as 10,000 a year of their own money going into the pub. And frequently they were having to have a, a second job just to try and support themselves and make a living. That seems like a very depressing note to end on. Mm. Should we go and have a drink? Uh, yes. <laughs> Thanks very much to Tim and Sarah for that. Uh, So now we have covered pubs, let's go to lunches. Uh, Since the late 1960s, uh, almost at the very beginning of Private Eye, uh, the magazine has hosted a regular lunch every fortnight for hacks, for politicians, for anyone else who is interesting, basically. And over the years, it's had a massive, very eclectic guest list featuring uh, even such eminent figures as a young Margaret Thatcher very early on in her political career. So, how did the lunches get started in the first place, and why do we even need them at all? Here is Adam McQueen, who wrote the official history of Private Eye. I asked Richard Ingrams, who was the editor before Ian Hislop, what the thinking was behind starting up the Real Lunches. And he, what he said was, we, we didn't know anyone and we didn't know anything. And it was a way of getting people along just to talk to them and tell them stuff. And people have this weird idea that journalism happens by a sort of process of osmosis, that you just kind of 
learn things and pluck them from the air and put them in but of course you don't i mean you you do need sort of insidery type people to come along and uh, and tell you stuff and it's not quite a case of kind of official secrets being swapped over the cheese board or anything it's really a case of um building up a kind of network of people um who might not necessarily uh come along with five perfectly formed stories for you but might know a bit of gossip from within the bbc or the house of commons or the labor party or wherever people turn up and they're, they're a bit nervous sometimes and they say what's the what's the purpose of these lunches and uh, and he says all right it's not a networking opportunity or anything this is not anything really really terrifying basically we're going to get you drunk and you're going to tell us stuff and we're going to put it in the magazine uh, at which point they, uh, they they look even more nervous and you've got them exactly where you want them it's an essential journalist activity for the magazine is what we're saying Eating lunch and drinking enormous amounts of booze is an essential journalistic activity for any magazine. I or can't newspaper. think of many other places which do it quite as religiously. Newspapers do tend to do lunches, but they tend to be for a sort of select crowd of people. I mean, famously, it was a, a, a mirror newspaper lunch that uh, Piers Morgan uh, invited the eclectic guest list of the boss of Vodafone at the time, Ulrika Johnson and Jeremy Paxman. And as recalled by Jeremy Paxman uh, at the Leveson Inquiry, you can go and look up the transcripts, he told the boss of Vodafone that the security measures on his network were not good enough and it was very easy for people to hack into uh, mobile phones uh, which is curious because it turned out later on he didn't actually know that The person charged with booking the right mix of guests for these boozy affairs is the eyes Maisie Glazebrook and as you'll hear the phrase boozy affairs can have more than one meaning Well, it's a difficult balance Um, You want to make sure that you don't get too many people from the same newspaper for one thing, which has happened before when it turns out that all all 12 guests come from the same paper. <laughs> I mean, Hillary, who used to organise the lunches before me and did a very, very good job, she used to say you needed to have a lawyer, you needed to have an actor, you needed to have a comedian, I think she used to say. And obviously the balance between men and women, you want to try and get that. I'm always pretty paranoid. I'm going to invite two people who've either had an affair with each other and it's ended very badly, or who hate each other. You surely can't be expected to know who hates everyone else in journalism, which is such a massive list of people. I know, I know. (laughs) That's true. I can't put all the blame on myself, but sooner or later it's going to happen. (laughs) There's going to be some kind of terrible scene and a punch-up. Is your aim basically to stop there being a punch-up at a private eye lunch? Well, I mean, a punch-up would be pretty good. I think Ian (laughs) would call that a successful lunch, probably. (laughs) <laughs> well, actually, we were very, very proud because last year, um, after 40-something years of lunches, we had our first shag that we know of. I got a call. So I organised the lunch and it all seemed to go fine. And everyone came back and said they'd had a great time and I was very happy. And then uh, the next day I got a call from the person who we deal with at the restaurant where the lunch is held. And she said that she just needed to flag up something that had happened for my attention. And I obviously started panicking and you know, something had gone seriously wrong. And she said, no, no, no. No, I just think it's good that you know that this is what happened. Two of your guests were discovered after the lunch in the toilet together. <laughs> And I then burst out laughing so loud and ran up the stairs to tell everybody I could think of. Burst into Ian's joke meeting, told everyone. And Ian said it was the best lunch that had ever happened. There we go. (laughs) And better than that, they were discovered in the toilet and then thrown out from the toilet. And then half an hour later, they were discovered in there again and thrown out again. Clearly the message hadn't got through the first time. No, 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 (laughs) through the waves of alcohol. Or love, obviously. <laughs> in the 70s, uh, Jermaine Greer and Jeffrey Bernard were at the same lunch. And, and Jermaine was heard to say to Jeffrey at some point late, late on after putting, Oh, for God's sake, Jeffrey, you've just talked yourself out of a fuck. <laughs> <laughs>
Now, uh, that makes the island sound very debauched. We'd like to correct that impression. It is not all like that. It is not all Ugandan discussions. Uh, over the years, we have had some extremely professional politicians and some very serious stories that have come out of the lunches. Politicians are really interesting, actually, because uh, sometimes you will get sat next to someone and... Maisie does a little potted biography beforehand and it will tend to say sort of what select committees they sit on and what questions they've asked in the House recently. And you think, oh, God, this is going to be really, really hard work. I'm going to have to talk a lot about housing policy. And actually, they turn out to be just fantastic gossips and really good fun. Uh, except occasionally you'll get some oh, one politician, ex-Liberal Democrat, now no longer in the House. You could tell, and this used to be true of a lot of new Labour politicians as well, if they'd even come, you'd ask a question and you could see the calculation of kind of what will this journalist be able to make of what I'm telling them before they would actually answer it in a very kind of on-message way? And that's just completely hopeless. That's not what you're, They're not going to have any fun. You're not going to have any fun. Uh, more recently, we had a, a, a fairly defiantly old Labour um, MP along um, who just, just, just sat and gossiped and swore throughout the entire dinner, and it was, it was perfect. I mean, we learned more about the state of the Labour Party from that than, uh, than you would from anything else. There was one particular very notorious occasion when a another Lib Dem MP, John Hemming, he turned up at a private eye lunch, and I think he'd been on the list for ages, um, and sort of you know scheduled to come along to this particular one. There was no particular reason for us to have him have him along that week, but it turned out to be the week when the News of the World were preparing to expose him for his mistress in a very spectacular story. Well, but even more spectacularly, Hemming turned up. And just announced this at the outset of the lunch. You know, no, he didn't even, didn't even wait until the main course or anything. It was before the starters had even gone out. He just said uh, said to this entire room, which uh, you know, as we talked about, the, the makeup of the lunches was full not just of private eye hacks but various other hacks as well. Uh, he just said, "Oh, I'm about to be turned over by the News of the World for uh, for having an affair," and uh, and and then just told us all about it in great um, great and spectacular um, detail, whilst getting in the in the in the phrase of my, my colleague uh, Francis Ween, who was lucky enough to be sat next to him, hog whimperingly drunk. And it was it was just incredibly spectacular, and you could see kind of journalists from other papers sort of making their excuses just just to nip out, pretend they were going for a cigarette or something. But actually, obviously, it was just a phone into their own news desk. You won't believe what's happened. But unfortunately, by this point, you know, it was all it was all scheduled to be in the news of the world the following Sunday, and it duly was as well. And his private life unravelled enormously spectacularly with tales of stolen kittens and uh, all sorts going on. Okay, okay, and, and now I realise that this is giving completely the wrong impression of the eye lunches, so let's talk about something safer. Let's talk about the building where they happen. Uh, for almost 50 years, these lunches took place at the function room of the Coach and Horses, a pub a few minutes' walk from the eyes offices in Soho. The attraction of, of the Coach and Horses in those days was is very unattractiveness, um, as personified in, in the landlord, Norman Balon, who was a, a great hero and a sort of member of the eye family. Um, it certainly wasn't because the food. The food was absolutely revolting. I always remember, I think it might have been my first eye lunch actually at that point i was a vegetarian and um i sort of tentatively inquired whether you know there might be a vegetarian option available and you just went no fuck off <laughs> and that was that was normal over that was that that was the charm of it. i mean famously peter jenkins who was an enormously pompous political journalist back in the 60s turned up at the coaching horses and to get to the lunch it, it was um, you actually had to go behind the bar and up a flight of stairs unless you knew where you were going you were completely lost so not unreasonably he 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 inquired of the landlord behind the bar um where where, where he was supposed to go uh, at which point norm, norm turned around to him and just went can't you see him on the phone fuck off <laughs> There's sort of a theme to most of these Norm stories, as you can tell. Um, and Peter Jenkins stormed upstairs and uh, where Ingrams and, and various other people were waiting and said, I've never been so insulted in my life! At which point they all just burst out laughing at him, at which point he thought the only way to save any face was just to leave completely. Oh, and no. got his lunch. 
He was known as Soho's rudest landlord, wasn't he? He was, very proudly. He had mugs printed up uh, that said very proudly on them, Soho's rudest landlord. And I, I've yet to meet anyone else who challenges for the title, certainly. Norm eventually retired in 2006, and with that, it was more or less the end of an era. And a few years later, the Eye moved its lunches to another establishment slightly closer. The food notoriously was not great. And these days, when I send out the invitation and the menu, people say, wow, thanks. what's happened to the eye? What's changed? Why is the food so fancy? Because <laughs> it is over-the-top fancy. In fact, some of the menu choices sound like something out of Sue's Corner, which is a little bit embarrassing for me. <laughs> Maisie Glazebrook. Thanks very much to her and to Adam McQueen. That is it for this episode. If you're interested in more of this sort of thing, then issue 1419 is now on sale, featuring David Cameron's Anti-Corruption Summit, a special report from the world of boxing, and a very funny cartoon involving a tub of lard. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray, and until next time, goodbye.